Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that, didn't you? I hope you're having a great day, and if you're not having a great day, I'm going to do everything I can to improve your day with a little bit of fun and a lot of very interesting conversation with a Nobel Prize winner, the Princeton economist Sir Angus Deaton, and we discuss the conclusions of a famous study that he co-authored a few years back, the conclusion being that happiness caps out at $75,000 a year in income. It's going to be a really good conversation, but before we jump into it, I want to tell you where you can find me on a stage telling jokes in the near future. This weekend, September 19th and 20th, I will be at the Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona, taking a much-needed break from this humidity we have on the East Coast. Damn it, it's September 16th or something. When is this going to break? Next week, I'll be at the Epic Comedy Hour with the good people of Huntsville, Alabama on the 27th. 28th, I have a private event in the suburbs of Atlanta. You're not invited to it, sorry, unless you are, in which case I'll see you there. October 4th and 5th, I will be here in Atlanta at the Red Clay Comedy Festival in the hip area known as East Atlanta Village. I hope I can hang with those incredibly hip people there. Okay, as I visited Princeton University last week to speak with Nobel Prize winner Sir Angus Deaton, I was overcome with this question, why didn't I study harder in college? Why was I so distracted by being a knucklehead that I didn't take advantage of all the brilliant minds that were on faculty there hoping to teach me some of the things that they worked so hard to learn themselves? I remember my senior paper economics advisor struggling with my lack of commitment to anything academic, uh, who knows? Maybe if I'd have gotten better grades, I would have not gone into sales. And I, I did like my job in sales. Anyway, Sir Angus Deaton, why do we care about him? Because, well, he's a brilliant man. And the reason it's relevant to this program is because we are here to explore the relationship between money and happiness. And Sir Angus Deaton co-authored a famous study a few years back that concluded that happiness peaks at $75,000 a year. By the way, his co-author of this study was Daniel Kahneman, who is in his own right a badass rock star academic. He wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And if you're a nerd, you probably worship him also. But let's talk about what it means. $75,000 a year. If you live in New York City or San Francisco, you're probably thinking, like hell, $75,000 a year makes me happy. But just chill your big city brains for one moment and listen to what we're talking about here. We're going to unpack this because the results of this research go much deeper. They're widely misconstrued as well. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, and we do this in the conversation, which is coming in just like 90 seconds, so hang on, is what do we mean by happiness? And at what point do we have enough money to have a fair shot at living a happy life? We'll discuss that today with who? Sir Angus Deaton, a native of Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland. Sir Angus earned his BA, MA, and PhD at Cambridge. Since 1983, he has been a member of the economics faculty at Princeton University. He has won many awards, most notably the 2015 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his analysis of consumption, poverty, and welfare. In 2016, Deaton joined the Order of the British Empire as a Knight Bachelor for his services to research in economics and international affairs. In response to this great honor, Professor Deaton wrote in a press release, I am delighted that the British government has continued its excellent tradition of knighting its Nobel laureates. It is a wonderful tribute to scholarship and much more fun than having to find a horse, a suit of armor, and a lance, so to ride into battle for the queen. 
Indeed. As you'll hear in this conversation, the 74-year-old Sir Angus has not only a brilliant mind, but a delightful sense of humor. And he's a big comedy fan. I wish I would have had the tape recorder on because on my way out the door, this academic giant asked me what I thought of the new Dave Chappelle special. How I wish I could share his thoughts with you. Alas, you'll just have to settle for world-class blue ribbon economic research and the commentary on it by this wonderful man, Sir Angus Deaton. Enjoy the conversation. I remember many, many years ago talking socially to a shrink who said, we call that disease Nobel Prize-itis, which is that, you know, no one's paying any attention, no one's recognizing your work, you know, and if only you can get the Nobel Prize, everybody would recognize you and those would go away. Right. Well, and he said, the one thing we've learned in my profession is that getting the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. Right. You know, and it's true, you know, if you're insecure about people not paying any attention to you, you'll be insecure after you win the Nobel Prize just right. as much as before. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. So, Sir Angus Deaton, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. We were just talking. I just interviewed a Princeton faculty colleague of yours, Peter Singer, He and you have some disagreements as to the best way to address world poverty, and you are identifying some of the issues that, structural issues that prevent conversation among academics. You know, when I started out in economics, I was in Cambridge in England Mm -hmm. in the late 60s. Yes. Um, And... The philosophers and economists really talk to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just a very, very junior person that no one noticed. And, you know, Amartya Sen was there and Bernard Williams was there. And all of the, you know, they were obviously extremely interested in philosophy. And Amartya had been interested in philosophy since he was an undergraduate, as far as I can see. And there was a lot of discussion about ethical issues and Rawls's book had just come out at that time, and economists were extremely interested in that. Economists were very interested in how you build ethics into a tax system, mm-hmm. for instance. So Jim Worley's was there then um, doing the work that he eventually got the Nobel Prize for. But for whatever reason, over the last 50 years, mm-hmm. that seems to really fall away. And of course, there are exceptions. But Economists are not very interested in the ethical foundations of what they're doing. They don't read philosophy. They don't talk to philosophers. Mm -hmm. They have a sort of very bastard view of utilitarianism or something, which they don't think about very much. And then they think about utility. They think about utility, but, you know, for them, it's just a U. It's a mathematical (laughs) symbol on the right. You know, it's not something you feel. (laughs) Right, right. um, Thing. And so it's manipulated, and, and you would have a very hard time getting a philosophically coherent statement out of most economists. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's left the philosophers who are interested in practical affairs, of which Peter Singer would be a very good example. Mm-hmm. Because they don't talk to economists, they don't understand how the world works very well, I think. And so you really need to bring a knowledge of how the world works with some ethical understanding if you're going to do policy. And I think both sides are doing that badly. 
Uh, because I, I don't think, I mean, you've read the last chapter of The Great Escape, and I'm not sure that those philosophers who are interested in saving the world have much understanding of the political and economic mechanisms that go on in those countries. You know, they have strong ethical preferences for helping people, which is fine. So do I. Sure. But it leads us to very different places. I hope we have time to get back to that. The fundamental objective of this podcast is to explore the relationship between money and happiness. Okay. And you've done some very important work in this field. I'd like to get to that before. And if we have time, sure. we'll come back to those other things. Absolutely. So I'm hoping we can start with a very simple question. Professor Deaton, does money buy happiness? Well, maybe I could start with the joke since you're a comedian, you know, <laughs> which is um, my ex-colleague Danny Kahneman, with whom I did that work, he always said, well, yeah, money buys happiness. The problem is you can't turn happiness into money. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that many people would be do a lot better if they could. So does money buy happiness? Well, not really. You know, you, you presumably um, looked at our paper. Oh, I did. And <laughs> I mean, part of the point of that paper, which was a research agenda to which I'm still committed, is that the word happiness is used in a very loose way. And there's happiness, which is, you know, you're looking at me and you're smiling. You look pretty happy. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty happy having this interview. So we're both feeling good at the moment. Sure. And that's a form of mood or happiness and so on. There's a different sort of happiness, which people use the word for all the time, which is how well do you think your life is going, mm -hmm. right? And both of those are really important. I mean, it's nice to feel happy. And, you know, one story that we used to tell that um, separates those two is let's say that you have a favorite uncle who's just died at the age of 98 and who had a very distinguished career and led a very good life. And you've just been in his funeral, mm -hmm. for instance. And if someone says, were you happy today? That's probably not the word you would choose. Right. Um, you would say, I was mourning this man. I was very sad at his departure. I was thinking about all the good times we spent together and how we'll never have those again. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sadness. There's regret, nostalgia. But happiness is probably not the word you would use. On the other hand, if you said, is your life going well? You'd say, this is the way life is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, these things happen and everybody has to die and he could not have died in a better way. So you could say, this is a good life. And, you know, that I think in some ways is a more fundamental question. Does this fictitious uncle of mine have a lot of money and how much of it will I inherit? I don't think that really matters <laughs> in this case. It might. And, and in fact, it might just cloud this. Yes. You know, so that you'd probably be better off in that situation, you know, having pure memories of your uncle that are not contaminated by the, the um, motive you've just imputed to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you express it in two kind of buckets. You have emotional well-being, which is, and maybe you can offer a little bit about how these data were collected, the different data regarding emotional well-being versus life evaluation. Right. Okay. So the life evaluation, which you could agree is a more fundamental thing. I mean, to me, if I'm an economist and I'm trying to evaluate the state of the world, that's the one I would pay most attention to. I'm not sure that's right, but that's the way I think about it. The question that we worked with is one that was actually invented at Princeton by a psychologist called Cantrell, Harvey Cantrell. Oh, that's where the ladder comes from. That's where the ladder comes from. And it says, you know, imagine a ladder and it has rungs from zero to 10. So there are 11 points on it. 
and zero is the worst life you could imagine for yourself, and 10 is the best life you right. could imagine for yourself, where do you put yourself on the ladder? The most important thing about that is that it, the word happiness does not appear anywhere in there. Mm. It's completely devoid of any feeling of how you're doing, you know, how you feel this moment. Right. All right. So Gallup asked that question in their surveys, and so we had a tremendous amount of data on that from the U.S. and from around the world. But Gallup also, and, and Danny really, Danny Kahneman was, you know, worked with Gallup when they were developing these surveys. So they also have the other sort of questions, which are the questions about mood and emotion. And those questions in the Gallup surveys at least take the form, did you feel a lot of X Mm -hmm. during the last 24 hours. Right. And X would be happiness, sadness, anger, stress, you know, and they're all different. Yes. And you get different answers. And they're not all perfectly correlated with each other mm -hmm. at all. And so those are clearly important. And I think Danny, when he was doing this work, thought those were the only things that were important. All there is is your feelings now. Mm. And if you could add all those up, you'd tell how your life was going. But I'm not sure he and I certainly don't believe that now that that's the most important well metric. i'm not sure whether i think it's very important and i don't want to take that away mm -hmm. but the sense of you know i am in the end an economist yes. and i'm interested in how people's lives are going and the latter is to me a very good question about that on the other hand you know if you ask people and you've obviously thought about this quite hard. What are the things you do in your life where you express a lot of happiness? And, you know, a lot of that is spending time with friends. Right. It's socializing. It's helping other people. You know, it's all the thing that religious readers talk about a lot of the time. So maybe, you know, the way to get high on the ladder is to have a lot of those other things so that you live your life in a way that, you do feel good a lot of the time. Well, the Harvard longitudinal study suggests that the number one driver of happiness is relationships. Yeah, is social is being a part of that. But go to the the most widely cited conclusion of this work, which I think is often misunderstood. And the conclusion is that people use for whatever reason they want to cite it that happiness caps out at seventy five thousand dollars a year. Is that what you found actually? Yeah. yeah, but it is happiness and not life evaluation. Meaning that people who had more than $75,000 didn't say they smiled more, laughed more, or were less stressed than people with less than $75,000. That's, That's exactly correct. One way to think about it is the other way, is if you have less than $75,000, you can't really undertake a lot of these activities which are productive of socializing, for right. instance. You know, you can't go out to dinner with your friends. You can't go to the ball game. You know, you feel shamed, perhaps, because <laughs> someone says, you know, yes. let's go on vacation together or let's have another nice weekend in the city. It's not the nice weekend in the city. It's the being with friends. Yes. Capital One won't let me go to brunch this weekend. <laughs> so emotional well-being, or what you call hedonic well-being, which doesn't mean it's hedonism, means you're feeling emotions, uh, positive emotions, you don't get more past $75,000. You have fewer below $75,000, which means that rich people can be stressed and unhappy and that poor people can sometimes also be happy. Yes. But you found with life evaluation that there was a significant correlation between income and the number of the rung of the ladder you placed yourself yeah. on. We didn't have Bill Gates or Elon Musk or <laughs> any of your ex-colleagues from Facebook in right. our sample. Yes. So, you know, we don't really know what happens way, way up 
up there, but in the data that we had, which had quite a lot of people reporting pretty high income, mm-hmm. we didn't see any turnaround in that. So I suggest that this, you know, to me, quite acceptable paradox that, you know, your li- your evaluation of life, I mean, it might be to some extent circular. We're all taught to evaluate our lives by what salaries we have. Yes. So when you say which point of the ladder on, the first thing you think about is what's my salary, mm. you know. Whereas the happiness, in which case, if you really thought that, then this is a bit circular. Right. Right. Whereas for the happiness or – and you don't put it the other way. It's if you have less than that, if you're really poor, money gets in the way of your friendships and your relationships and the things that actually are going to make your life good. I kind of always interpreted it. Now, I, there were periods in my life where I'd get paid and have $14 left until my next paycheck, and that left little money to fund socializing, dating, discretionary purchases of any kind. Right. I woke up and I was thinking about money within 20 minutes of waking up. Yep. I was worried about how I was going to pay my credit card bill. So this makes a ton of sense to me. And it always felt to me like an additional $10,000 was relieved an enormous amount of pain at that point. Yep. Whereas somebody who's making $100,000 makes an additional $10,000. It's nice, but it doesn't relieve pain. It provides vitamins to their life. That's exactly right. I think so. I mean, I also grew up pretty poor. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my father kept a book in which every penny he spent, literally, you know, in Britain, you had to spend a penny to go to the bathroom. And he, <laughs> if well, you were, that, uh, you're going to make the most of that pence, right? And he would write that down in, you know, his book. And he'd grown up in the Depression in a coal mining town in Yorkshire. And, you know, he struggled for money all his life. And there's a sort of curse there which you do pass on to your children, which is that they worried about money all the time. You know, they want you to worry about money yes, all the time yes. and not frivolously spend. I mean, I give another example of something that made me very happy and which I was deprived of as a child and made me incredibly angry and actually had nothing to do with relationships. It was for two shillings and sixpence, which was, um, you know, what, an eighth of a pound. Right, um, which was not very much money even then. I could buy a fishing license that would enable me unlimited access to fish for trout on mm. the nearby River Tweed. Mm. And my father said, well, this year we're having a hard time, son. I can't give you that. And I was enormously resentful over that because it was like withholding a big chunk of happiness and contentment and meaning in my life over what seemed like a very small sum of money. So I don't think it's just relationship. Would you catch and release those trout, or did you take them home and eat them? Yeah, my mother was sending me out for food as well. What she was doing. That <laughs> seems like a very good investment of an eighth of a of a pound, right? Uh, right. Well, maybe I didn't catch enough, <laughs> or maybe it was just what in economics we call a liquidity crisis. Yes, <laughs> that he didn't have the money to give me the two the what we call a half crown um, at at that point. But I just remember the resentment to this day. Yes, but it's like the sort of things we're talking about. You you know, yes. someone wants me to go and have dinner with them and I can't take them a bottle of wine or I can't take them a six-pack of beer or something, you know, and I feel ashamed. As you built your own solvency as a young adult, did you find yourself, does the data resonate with your life experience? It's taken a long time. And I think some of that is that, you know, I stopped worrying much too late. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know. So Are you saying I can stop worrying? I'm 50. Is it time for me to stop worrying? Well, it probably is. I, you know, my son, who is works for D. Shaw, the hedge fund, mm-hmm. probably people you know, lives what seems to me a, a, a wonderful life. Yes. And, but when he was a student here at Princeton, he had no money. And he would somehow smuggle himself into the Metropolitan Opera House or things like that. So he seemed to be pretty equitably happy. Mm-hmm. And he does spend a lot of money. And, but he seems to get enjoyment out of it. Yeah. And that's much harder for me given the way I grew up. So I guess what I'm saying is the the, the penumbra, the shadow of my father and his worry lay over me for much too long. Right. And it's really for me only in the last few – I mean, one of the things that does happen is when you win the Nobel Prize, it turns out to be pretty stupid to stop work, to go on worrying about money before right. that point. So one of the themes that keeps coming up in this is the more you read about money and happiness, you come back to the hedonic treadmill and our tendency as human beings, our capability as human beings to survive disaster, but also to not feel joy around positive events for very long. So how long did it take for you to habituate to the thrill of winning the Nobel Prize and being knighted? Well, we sort of switched subject. You know, we're not talking about money anymore. Right. I mean, the Nobel Prize comes with money, but... I'll tell you a story here about that, too. This is a very sad story. Yes. So a very, very distinguished economist at Harvard, uh, Marty Weitzman, Mm -hmm. died 10 days ago. Mm -hmm. And according to all the accounts, he killed himself. And according to the New York Times, which has turned into sort of a tabloid on a lot of these issues, (laughs) that one of the reasons he killed himself is because he was passed over for the Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. Which um, Bill Nordhaus got last year for his work on climate. Mm -hmm. And there's no enmity at all between these two guys. They've worked together. They respect each other enormously. And indeed, Bill Nordhaus has said, since he got the prize, that when he got the prize, he expected to get it with Marty Weitzman mm-hmm. because Marty had done a different sort of work from what he'd done, but equally important. It's had a huge effect on people's thinking and on policy and so on. So <laughs> I remember many, many years ago talking um, socially to a shrink who'd said, we call that disease Nobel Prize-itis, right? Mm. Which is that, you know, no one's paying any attention, no one's recognizing your work, you know, and if only you can get the Nobel Prize, everybody would recognize you and those would go away. Right. Well, and he said, the one thing we've learned in my profession is that getting the Nobel Prize does not cure Nobel Prize-itis. Right. You know, and it's true. You know, if you're insecure about people not paying any attention to you, you'll be insecure after you win the Nobel Prize just as much as before. So it's true. I mean, I knew that would happen from day one. On the other hand, it's a wonderful thing for those three months or whatever it is. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody's incredibly nice to you. <laughs> one of the things Random that podcasters find you on the internet. The <laughs> random podcasters find you on the internet. But also one of the things about it that Danny said, and it's really true, is it makes other people incredibly happy. Right? For you. For you. Mm-hmm. No, but it, it gives them pleasure. So it's yes. sort of like a happiness machine. Uh. I remember the day after I got it, I actually had dinner with Peter Singer and some friends. Mm-hmm. And I got an Uber back, right? And I thought, I'll just tell the Uber driver, you know, I won the Nobel Prize today. And the guy became ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a pretty cool thing to tell somebody. <laughs> well, I thought, why not try and see what happens? You yeah. Know? Say, what? You know, what the hell is that sort of yeah. idea? But it wasn't like that at all. It just made him laugh. He was delighted. And he's told 100 people that and story. And he probably told 100 people that story. So that's an unexpected part. Yeah. That it's a really a pleasure machine. And there are other nice parts about it, like the the week in Stockholm mm. is a pretty special yeah. set of events. And they've been doing it for a long time. They sort of know how to make it work. Yeah. But you get to take 13 people with you. I Do don't you know really? where the 13 comes from. Yeah, wow. they don't pay for them. But mm -hmm. you, you can get 13 people and they're invited to the ceremony and the, the banquet and all the events. And for us, they were mostly, they were about equally split between my family mm -hmm. and my co-authors. Did you take the dean? No, not type of deep. But the thing about it that I totally unexpected was it was like a family holiday, mm. just the best family holiday you can ever imagine. So there was just a lot of things in it which are things like we're talking about. Yes. Where there's a lot of happiness around you and other people as well. Happiness mm -hmm. is sort of infectious that way. And you get to spend time with your kids, my kids, my grandkids. I was also fortunate I was the only Nobel laureate in my year who had kids in the attractive TV amenable sort of age group. Right. And so they became stars in their own right. And people would come up to me in the street and say, I love your Bern Bern, which is <laughs> Swedish for grandchildren. That's great. Um, so, no, that was very happiness producing things. But the thing about the Nobel Prize is it changes your life. It's really impossible to compare before and afterwards. Well, I was speaking to this financial psychologist a few weeks ago, and he works with very high net worth individuals and some of the issues that they have. And he says, one of the things about making a lot of money is that before you have a lot of money, you can comfort yourself by saying, if I had a lot of money, then I would be happy. Right. And that turns out not to be the case right. most, much of the time. So it's not necessarily about habituation. It's about sort of the realization that, you know, your problems stay with you. Well, whether... this is the problem of setting false goals, right? Yes. You, know, you, you think you'll be happy if this happens. And, you know, you don't have to belong to much of a church to be told that that's not going to work for you. That's right. Um, so that that is, a, you know, human wisdom that's been accrued for a long time. And you would have thought people might have learned it by now. It's funny how you got to figure it out on your own. Uh, we can come back to some of these issues, but we did change the subject. I want to talk about some of the conclusions your study, this study came up with. For example, life, let's see, the presence of children at home is associated with significant increases in stress, sadness, and worry. And but here, also with some positive things too. You know. was, it, was it positively correlated with life evaluation? I don't remember. I don't think that was in the study with Kahneman, but it was another work we did since. Okay. I mean, the problem with all of that literature is that, you know, people choose to have kids, right? Yes. So if you wanted to have kids and you couldn't have kids, that would make you pretty unhappy. Yes. Right? If you didn't want kids, you know, remember the days when you used to get your girlfriend pregnant or it was a concern? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, sir. I <laughs> guess <course> not. <laughs> but, you know. I tried uh, not to. Right. But I mean, that was time. something that could make you seriously very, unhappy. Very stressed. Right. Yes. And, you know, if you ask people, how do you solve this? They say, well, we should allocate children randomly to people. Well, if I woke up with a random child on my pillow tomorrow morning, <laughs> I don't know what that would do to me. But that's not what we're talking about here. So I think that problem is sort of unresolvable mm. in some sense. You know, what do you expect? I mean, it, it's like 
I was going to say it's like getting a Nobel Prize, but it's not. It's like, um, you know, your life is going to be changed. It's, it's something that you really want to do in some ways. It's mm-hmm. going to bring you a lot of stress and anxiety. And, you know, a lot of the things we couldn't look at in that study is what do grandchildren do to you, for instance? What does it feel like, you know, when you're 60 and you have kids who've been successful? Mm. Or in the book that Anne and I have just written, what happens to you if you're 60 and your kids are on drugs? Right. Or, um, you know, are threatening to commit suicide? And, and we read and see people like that all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a way. So children, what was it Bacon said, I think, that he who is a wife and children has given hostages to fortune? What does he mean by that? It just means you put yourself enormously at risk. Right. And those hostages you know, can come and bite you or they can bring you great joy. Mm -hmm. But you've really, it's like, you know, if you're in finance, it's like building a very risky portfolio. It might pay off and it might not, but you've certainly opened yourself up to a lot of emotional distress as well as a lot of happiness. Yes. Ah, interesting. But I just think that in the techniques we use of trying to look at these data, that question is not addressable in a way that, um, you know, is satisfying uh, or should be paid any attention to, which doesn't thought in the newspapers every time you write a paper about children and happiness, it always gets published. <laughs> that does. Well, there's some, there's lots of really interesting nuggets. So most people, about 85% were happy and satisfied. Yep. 24% reported sadness and worry. Stress was reported by 39%. The U.S. ranked ninth country in life satisfaction behind Scandinavians, Canada, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and and New Zealand. Can we agree that the Nordics cheat on these life evaluation scores? I mean, there's something going on there. It's collusion. It's got to be collusion. Well, I I would hate to accuse the Swedes who've been so nice to them. (laughs) <laughs> of any sort of collusion of that sort at all. But, I mean, there there is a serious issue, which is that there, I think most of us do believe that there are country-specific things in there, that Latinos and Latinas mm-hmm. tend to be more positive, mm. that Chinese people in the Far East tend to respond pretty negatively on these scales compared with what they have. And that might be to do with the fact that, you know, in the culture you're just not supposed to say... You know, I grew up in Scotland. Where yes. <laughs> Where's your accent? Where did well, it go? Well, that's a long story. A few but, decades uh, in New Jersey. A few decades in New Jersey. You know, the, the most positive thing you ever say in Scotland is I mustn't grumble. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and depression is something that only happens to the weather, not right. to people. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I, the, the, there clearly are national traits about the way people either feel or respond to those questions. The real question is about translating the words, too. Right. You, well, you say in your book, The Great Escape, in the U.S., being happy is a civic responsibility. Right. Well, it's in the Declaration of Independence, right? The U.S. scored very high in worry at 89th, sadness 69th, and 75th in anger. Are we just too stressed out? I mean, what's going on in the U.S., do you think? I think what's happening in the U.S. is not good. And we could get, you know, I've just written a book about unhappiness in the U.S. Uh, And I think, you know, there are really seriously bad things happening, Mm -hmm. especially to people who don't have a college degree, who've been sort of left out of all the goodies somehow. Speaking of which, you say college graduates have a higher life evaluation, but report more stress than non-college grads. But especially with your recent work, you're seeing that white middle-aged white Americans without a high school diploma are dying at a faster rate than has happened in decades. 
I'm not sure than decades, but the mortality rates have been decades is hard because you know things were improving for a long time, mm-hmm. and so exactly where the turning point is. So it's true that all cause mortality has risen or been flat for about the last 19 years. That's mm-hmm. right. So that's about right. Yeah. You just have to be careful because people like to say, you know, the right on this says, well, things are way better than they were in 1980, for instance. Well, that's true. On average. Well, yeah, but you get a, you know, it goes down and comes up. Mm -hmm. But one thing you've talked about stress quite a lot, which I think is quite important, is um, one paper that I did with Arthur Stone and various other colleagues was looking at the age patterns Mm-hmm. and those things. So the one thing that's really interesting is stress and anger after about middle age drop like a stone. Right. You know. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. And you uh, yourself have just said you've stopped learned to stop worrying about money. Yeah, but I'm seventy four years old or seventy three years so old. So you're dragging so up the numbers. You're I may be dragging <laughs> up the numbers. But I think that's that seems to be pretty universal. There's a woman called Laura Carstensen who's a professor at Stanford mm-hmm. who has a, what she calls a socio emotional model of adaptivity and the point is that you get wiser as you get older mm. you stop going on blind dates for goodness right. sake you know that's what <laughs> examples you get i mean a blind date is like giving hostage to fortune right it's yes. probably going to be totally miserable yes but you still have to do it anyway well when you get to be 70 years old or 60 years old or 55 years old you stop trying to make friends with people who are going to be bad for you and you rely more on the people you know, so I think there is a lot of you call it wisdom, if you like. I mm-hmm. think there is a growth in wisdom, and you learn not to do things that are going to make you really unhappy. There are other things too. I mean, when you're in your fifties, you have kids to worry about, you have parents to worry mm-hmm. about, yes. and it's very easy for people in that age to feel completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And you know, careers put a lot of stress on people at that age. Yes, and. Um, you know, if you've got children who are not doing very well or whose future is very uncertain. I think probably the major source of unhappiness among the people we know who are like us are, are the kids are not settled. Mm-hmm. How does your, your most recent work around mortality and morbidity, is there any connection between the happiness study and that? Um, some of it is. I mean, one of the things we've struggled with is we think of a lot of these deaths as broad form suicides mm-hmm. in some sense, you know, that you either take your own life because your life is completely disintegrated and it's Mm -hmm. not worth living anymore, or your life is so miserable you sink a quart of bourbon when you come home from work every day, Mm -hmm. or, you know, you're susceptible. Um, You know, if you're in pain, um, physical pain, or even social pain, you know, because you've lost friends or because the work environment you used to work in is not there anymore, Mm the brain uses opioids to try to make you feel better. The pain circuits are based around opioids. And so external opioids can really make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, You help the brain along restore these things. But obviously, if things are going really badly, there's potential for addiction and all those sort of things. One of the things, when Anne and I started working on this topic, we came into it through the happiness side. Mm -hmm. So... One of the questions that had been in the back of my mind for years, no one could ever answer, or people answered it, but they gave me contradictory answers, was, are places where people are very happy places where people are less likely to kill themselves? And one of the senior scholars in this field said yes, and the other one said no. (laughs) And it turns out the data are not that predictive. 
So, for instance, in the U.S., there's this huge suicide belt up the Rocky Mountains. Mm. So the county we spend our time in in the summer is Madison County, Wisconsin, um, which is around Ennis. The suicide right there is... Wisconsin. No, Madison County, sorry, Madison County, Montana. Montana, right, okay. Yeah. And we are now in Mercer County, New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> and the suicide rate in Madison County, Montana, is five times the suicide rate in um, Mercer County, New Jersey. Overall. Overall. Mm-hmm. How do you mean overall? Well, as opposed to among uh, white no, men in their 40s. just the, the okay. suicide rate there. And I think that's over the last decade. There, there are not enough suicides year by year in a county. That's right. Fine. And... Yet, I don't know about Madison County, it's too small to have the data on it, but happiness is very, these life satisfaction numbers are very good all Mm. the way up the Rocky Mountains. So people say they're doing really well and they kill themselves. Some of that happens across European countries too. The Scandinavian countries used to have pretty high suicide rates, they're not so high anymore. And they were always way up on this happiness scale. So we started out thinking, well, what is the link between happiness and suicide? And it turns out there isn't much of one. Mm. And if you look very hard, you can find things. But So this epidemic of death does not seem to be particularly, you, you don't see su- you know, unhappiness going up in the same way. So there's no correlation between either life evaluation or emotional well-being. Well, emotional well-being, physical pain is very strongly linked to suicide. Mm. So, um, and yet, the and the things that we've been talking about that predict happiness, like social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what the numbers are, but I think there's about 2,000 people per square mile in Mercer County, mm-hmm. and there's like two <laughs> per square mile in Madison County. Right. Because they're mostly pine trees and rocks, right? Sure. You know, yeah. there's no people there. So, and a lot of the suicide literature suggests that's a real risk factor because you don't have people to turn to. You're out mm-hmm. on the range by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we don't know. Um, and yet, there are pieces in the book we talk about that. For instance, um, one of the things that's very interesting is if you look at stress and pain and the latter and the other measures, blacks are now doing better than whites, mm. conditional on education. Mm-hmm. Um, so blacks tend not to get a college degree or at least a much lower fraction of them get college degrees than whites do. Mm-hmm. But once you look at college grads and people without a college degree, blacks tend to do better on all those measures now than whites did, which I'm not sure what it tells you. You know, mm. I, I'm a very skeptical. In, in Scotland, we're taught to be very skeptical. <laughs> God bless you. God bless us. So, you know, people used to make all these extravagant claims about these happiness things that, you know, this was all you should ever look at. And if you could measure how happy people were, you could do public policy and you didn't need to know anything else. Mm-hmm. And so I came into this literature sort of a skeptic and I've come away more positively Mm. impressed than I was before partly because of the things we've been talking about a lot of which makes sense Mm -hmm. right and you know economists tend to be very narrow and if these things pick up the amount of time you spend with friends or these things that's a really good thing because we're taking a broader view of the world so as the economy changes and manufacturing jobs go away the middle class goes away does that accelerate social isolation and the things that lead us to our own destruction? Well, I don't think it's doing so badly for the people who went to college, right? You know, who've adapted to this economy. Mm-hmm. 
pretty well and you know have found ways of getting the things they want i think for the people the more working class people which are you know it's 40 percent of whites mm -hmm. in working age you know do not have a ba so and you know Sorry, it's 40% of the U.S. population are whites without a BA. So okay. it's a much larger number than that. Right. And a lot of the life that was there is not there anymore. So, you know, they used to write about the blue-collar aristocrats, mm. you know, people who worked for Bethlehem Steel. Or, right. And those jobs were not great jobs. They were often on an assembly line and the work was dangerous and so on. But and you had even, a boat and a cabin on the weekend. Well, some of them did that. But even in coal miners where they didn't have a boat and a cabin, they had a social life around mm -hmm. there. I mean, I remember where my father grew up in Yorkshire. It was a pretty awful social life. There was a lot of violence against women. There was a lot of drinking. Mm -hmm. But there were also brass bands and marching bands. And there was a culture there. And I think those cultures have widely fallen apart. Mm. And as manufacturing jobs are replaced by service jobs, there's not much culture around working in an Amazon warehouse. Sorry. Right, that's right. a very Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're actually not even warehouses; they're fulfillment centers. Yes, right? yes. Um, <laughs> Ironically named. I roll all the fulfillment is for the customer, <laughs> yeah, not, not, the, not for the human being that works. There. Yeah, exactly. So, and yet, some of those service jobs are not like that. They're, you know, you have quite a lot of autonomy. A truck driver is not such a bad job. I've never been a truck driver, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of what people call wealth jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a private chef for someone. Yes. Um, you know, you're a dog walker, you're mm -hmm. a fitness trainer. The world seems to have been taken over by fitness trainers. Yes. And those seem to me, you know, not bad jobs, mm -hmm. all right? I mean, you have a lot of personal contact with people. A lot of it's quite pleasant. I think working at McDonald's or working in a call center or driving for Uber. Uber is a sort of mixed thing. I think some of it could be good and some of it could be bad. Right. So I think the nature of work is changing in very unpredictable and difficult ways for people who don't have a BA. We started the conversation about where economics and philosophy kind of meet. So yep. when it comes to policy that are meant to address some of these social ills, right. there's been a lot of discussion around universal basic income one of the cons would seem to be that you could just stay home and get a check and you don't have to socialize. You don't have to go out to work. You don't have to have something to work at and find fulfillment in. How do you feel about it? Well, uh, I think you want to worry about who's paying for those checks. <laughs> well, that's, oh, well, well, forget about it. Somebody's going to come up with the money, surely. I mean, we always find it, don't we? Uh, well, I'm not sure we do. There's, you know, Robert Frank, who writes about behavioral economics. Yes. Um, has a wonderful piece that I think Lane Kenworthy, who's at UCSD, had quoted mm -hmm. in his book. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, here, he, he, take this universal basic income, right? And however much it is, you get $10,000 a year mm -hmm. or something or 20000 in some of them. And he said, imagine a bunch of um, ex-hippies you know, who decide to set up a commune in California mm -hmm. somewhere. And they pull... You know, they get 10 of them together, yeah. plus their kids and so on. And this is extended to everybody. So they've got a collective income for their uh, commune, yes. or their commune yes. or whatever it is, of 120 grand a year, 
or something. And, you know, if they grow a little marijuana on the side mm -hmm. and um, maybe have some fruit trees, then they can sit around reading poetry to, <laughs> to each other and smoking weed and having a wonderful time. Sorry, uh, where is this farm again? I this need farm is, <laughs> yeah, where are we? How do I get there? It's in euphoric state, as someone once <laughs> called it. Uh, <laughs> And Robert Frank says, well, imagine a dentist in Minneapolis right, mm -hmm. who's got varicose veins and who gets up at six o'clock in the morning and drives through the snow for an hour and a half to treat these patients, most of whom are trying to bilk him, who have bad breath mm -hmm. and will reluctant to pay their bills. And he goes home and on the television, he sees this commune in euphoric state in which these people are having a wonderful time being paid for by his taxes. Yes, of right? course. It ain't going to happen, you know. <laughs> it just isn't. And, you know, and we know this because in the Nixon administration, when Milton Friedman and people had pressed this idea of a negative income tax, mm -hmm. they did all these negative income tax experiments in the U.S. in the 60s to try and find out what would happen. And when the results of that came in and went to Washington, even Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was pushing this, um, just ran for the cover. Yeah. Right? Because it showed that if you pay people a lot of money, they won't work. Yes. Right? And that's a good thing. I'm all for it, you know, that it would be wonderful. But you want to buy people free leisure before they've got health care mm -hmm. or before they get to go to school mm -hmm. or something? It just doesn't seem to me very high on their priority. And given that people don't like paying taxes, you know, let's try to give people universal health care right. before we start worrying about universal basic income. Yeah. We mentioned before we started talking of some of the differences in your opinions about how to alleviate global poverty. And you come from the standpoint that global aid is not helpful. And if I'm if I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, please correct me. What should we do to help? And I know you're deeply committed to alleviating global poverty. So how should we how should we go about it? Well, you know, the one thing is I, I like to quote my friend Bill Easterly who whenever he's asked that question, he says, who put us in charge? <laughs> you know, why do we have this responsibility? He wrote The White Man's Burden, yes. is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a very good question, actually, because, you know, you could have an ethical responsibility and believe you should do everything you can to make things better for people who are in real misery. But putting us in charge <laughs> is a whole different kettle of fish and it uh, you know it violates it may violate human freedom someone sent me an article today from the guardian in london where bill gates has given modi a huge prize mm. for sanitation project mm -hmm. right and of course the fact that he's locking up these people and depriving the Assamese who came from bangladesh as citizens and is trying to take over kashmir which is majority Muslim mm -hmm. state is somehow they don't care about. So one of my criticisms of the aid industry is that it's not broad enough. I mean, it's trying to have clean toilet facilities for people and not worrying if their um, leaders are putting them in jail or persecuting them because they have this very narrow vision of what they should really be doing. So we should be giving aid to only states that have some human rights record, some minimum level of human rights. Well, then you get what I talk about in The, in the Great Escape, which is this paradox that Peter Bauer first put forward, which is the states that you would like to give aid to where it's not going to do any harm are the ones that don't need it. Right. And the ones where it's going to do a lot of harm 
and it's these ones in between, of which there seems to be an increasingly large number. I mean, Kagami in Rwanda mm. is another example, or Modi in India, mm -hmm. of oppressive authoritarian states, which actually can use the money because they're pretty well organized. Right. But nevertheless, I got into terrible trouble once for saying that Kagami was basically farming his people because, you know, he can say, you know, I'll let the aid agencies look after them right. and you'll get all this goodness that, you know, people don't get diarrheal disease anymore. And in the same time, I become a darling of the aid industry and you don't go after me when I, you know, punish my opponents and lock them up. Mm. And it's partly that, you know, the, the aid people are not really taking things into account like freedom and democracy and the right to self-determination and so on, which are really incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So there are things that you can do, which is what I argue in The Great Escape, that if you can do things not in those countries, but for those countries, which is like giving them better trading opportunities, mm -hmm. for instance, not levying protective talents against them. Also immigration, which we're going in the wrong direction on as far as that is concerned. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what I think about immigration, but it's clear that you know, immigrants, the remittances that immigrants send home are multiples of foreign aid mm -hmm. and it's sort of under the people's own control and a lot of the things I worry about are just not there. So, you know, but the, my, my problem is just that, you know, you have to think through the consequences of these things and much more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, there's unintended consequences. There's a lot of unintended consequences. And, you know, providing schools for people stops people monitoring the schools and the schools belonging to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are really hard questions because people are suffering. Where do you give your charitable money? I worry about that a lot. Um, and over the years, I've oscillated. I mean, I used to give it to MSF. I like MSF. What is MSF? I'm sorry. Um, Médecins Sans Frontières. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, right, yeah. And because they are alive to these ethical problems in a lot of other aid agencies or mm -hmm. not. And so they're the first to leave when they believe they've been morally compromised. Right. And I like that. But I tend to give more to places around here because I feel that, you know, I can see what it's doing and I'm not, you know, a lot of the problem with aid is that the people who are giving the money are completely disconnected from mm. the people who are receiving it. Right. So there's no real accountability. Whereas if I give money here and it causes something bad to happen, I and other people around here will be held accountable for that. And you made an argument recently that the poorest in the United States are actually on a price-adjusted basis as poor as almost anybody in the world. Right. I got a lot of shit for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> if you read that article, which was an op-ed in the New York Times, it's very careful in what it says. Right. And so I please correct what I, my summary. No, no, it. no. I mean, that was, of course, the impression <laughs> that I was wanting to leave. Yes. And it was partly there are these wonderful books by my colleagues here, Kathy Eden, who'd written this book on living in America on $2 a day, mm -hmm. and also by Matt Desmond, who got a Pulitzer Prize for his PhD thesis on wow. homelessness in Milwaukee. And, you know, the ethnographers have left very little doubt that if you go live with those people, the misery there is extraordinary. Mm. So I was very convinced by that. And then, you know, because the UN has now decided that the new sustainable development goals, which replace the Millennium Development Goals, should apply to the whole world, mm -hmm. then you can actually go to the World Bank website and look up how many poor people there are in every country in the world, including the rich countries. Mm -hmm. 
And you get these numbers that the New York Times put in that nice chart for me, showing that there are like 5 million people here. Now, the people on the right, of course, think that there is no poverty in, in America. <laughs> And, you know, so there's a lot of questions about these data. Yeah. And people are arguing this, which I've not really participated in, and I'm sure they have some truth on their side, is they say we know from the administrative records how much was paid out, mm -hmm. and it's not really showing up in these surveys. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money out there. Of course, that doesn't tell you where it went or who right. took it or something. I have no doubt that there's a lot of misery here. And I think if you're living in the Mississippi Delta, you know, the poorest people along the Mississippi Delta, as well as uh, some really bad urban places, I would stick with my current view that those people are as poor as anyone on earth. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's a much broader, you know, these are people who are selling their children's social security numbers to other people mm. and just awful things going on. And I think in a lot of, you know, local places, poor people are really badly harassed. Mm -hmm. The justice system turns against them. They, um, they're no longer um, giving clean water. There's a scandal in Flint and so on. A lot of places don't have proper sewage, so the stuff that should be piped away is in people's gardens and mm -hmm. things. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are things that you really only associate with some of the poorest countries in the world. And the UN did a report on that too, which I got blamed for some reason. They, <laughs> it's your fault. It was my fault, yeah. Um, so I do think that, there are, but that's different from the book that Anne and I have written, which yes. is more about you know this white working class right. that's these much better off, mm -hmm. and the, the deaths are not happening among blacks, or they're not until very recently. Mm -hmm. And um, what seems to have happened very recently is that fentanyl has gotten into the yes. drug supply and, mm -hmm. uh, with terrible consequences. You said you were worried about our country this country, the United States, what are you most worried about and what do you hope is fixed by the time your grandchildren are, are adults? Yeah, uh, my grandchildren are closer to adults. Well, let's say by the time they have kids or have their kids, kids have kids something. in a generation, let's say. I, I find a lot of these problems quite intractable. Um, for the reasons I give in The Great Escape, I'm very optimistic in the long run because I think people want things to be better mm -hmm. and will somehow find ways. And that's been true over the last 250 years. Um, but, of course, it's not continuous progress. You know, some of the worst things that have happened in human ha history happened in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we don't have to make a list of what they are. I'm very worried by this educational division, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, too, like in Britain, which is mm -hmm. in complete chaos. <laughs> Um, over somewhat similar issues yeah. in that, you know, you've got a cosmopolitan elite who's doing very well, thank you very much, and who think they understand what's good for everybody else. And then the people who are not so well educated who very much resent that. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, Trump and Boris Johnson are not the same person by any manner of means, but there are certainly similarities and the British political system seems to be responding somewhat better right now than the American one is in that, you know, standards of decency were sort of upheld. Mm -hmm. People saying you really can't do that. Right. And the courts to some extent supporting that and people abandoning him, which has not happened here at all. So right. I think there's much greater risk of long-term damage to institutions here than there has been in Britain. But that doesn't mean it's going to get resolved. But this this sort of twilight of the elites, I forgot who wrote that book, an excellent journalist, 
you know, I think it's, it's a real problem. We mm. instituted a meritocracy and it doesn't work. Right, right. Well, how do we end on an upbeat note? <laughs> I don't know. We Let's talk about back. your Nobel Prize again. How, where, do I, where, where should I eat in Stockholm? <laughs> where should you eat in Stockholm? Um, I don't know. But I mean, one of the things, just come back to happiness a bit. Yes. It's clear that, you know, there's a positive thing about you don't need a lot of money to live a really good life. Yes. Right? And so that many people who don't have very much through their friends or through their religion or through the things they do can find great fulfillment in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways out that's going to happen in America is that we're not going to see everything in terms of educational success or money making. And we're going to valorize lots of other ways of having a really good life. Mm -hmm. And I think that would make for a better world and one in which I'd be very happy to see my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, who I doubt I'll ever see. <laughs> uh, it's this curse, you know. We, I, I had my kids when I was in my early 20s. Yeah. You know, so I could expect it to be a granddad by the time I was 45 or 50, right? But, of course, everybody stopped breeding. That's <laughs> right. We were in their 40. We're following the European pattern here. Yes. So my, my children weren't born until I was 40. So. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. So you're like my kids. Yeah. They're you know, they say, well, we better get on with it now, otherwise it ain't going to yeah, happen. Right. So then they do when they're 40. So if my grandchildren have it when they're 40, you know, I'll be 105 by yes. the time I have great-grandchildren. So that particular joy is not likely to be vouchsafed to me. Well, here's but, hoping you meet one of them. I hope so. Professor Deaton, do you have a website where our listeners can find out more or find your books? The books you can find in Amazon mm -hmm. or anywhere else. Yeah. Googling Angus Deaton will take you to me. All right. Yeah. And your book with Professor Anne Case comes out when? March the 17th. March Patrick's 17th. Day. All right. Yeah. And then the title is? It's called Deaths of Despair in the Future of Capitalism. So it's the sort of things we're talking about. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's thank been a you. pleasure it's been to talk to you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was certainly fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it also. But I really had a good time in Princeton speaking with Sir Angus Deaton last week in his office. Really good time. By the way, the organization that he was referring to, if you don't speak French, Médecins Sans Front, I'm not going to do it. Sorry. It's Doctors Without Borders. I don't speak French, as if you couldn't tell. Anyway, that's Doctors Without Borders. Also, we referred several times to Peter Singer in that interview. If you don't know the name, Peter Singer is a Princeton philosopher who is a big name in the world of poverty eradication. And I interviewed him earlier that morning in Princeton. And I'm going to release that interview in December, coinciding with the re-release of his book, The Life You Can Save. And that is going to be on December 3rd third or fourth, whichever of those is a Tuesday. So look forward to that. And also Peter Singer was every bit as hospitable as was Professor Deaton with his time and openness talking to some unknown knucklehead walking into his office going, sure is pretty here in Princeton. Where's all the ivy? Anyway, hey folks, if you like what you're doing here and if you've listened this far, either you fell asleep or you like what we're doing, sure would appreciate it if you took some time to share this episode with your friends, to go to iTunes or to Spotify or to Google Play podcasts, wherever you listen to this, drop us some stars, drop us some kind words, let everybody else out there know that this conversation is worth their time. Really would appreciate it. Thank you again to editor, uh, producer extraordinaire, Mike Carano. Let it fly, Mikey.